0: I always say to patients, even when they come in saying, I, I had a slip-up, I've had a lapse, I was like, look, you're here today. You still want to do something different. So that's what I see as success whenever a patient shows up.
1: Welcome to the podcast Breaking Free, produced by the Cook County Sheriff's Office. In the journey of recovery, those with opioid use disorder will hopefully get in touch with a professional who can help them figure out The kind of treatment they need. Do they need medication? What about a 12-step program or a residential facility? How long should they stay in it? Philip Mays has been that person for countless individuals in the opioid crisis. He is a certified addictions registered nurse and a care coordinator for medication-assisted treatment at the University of Illinois' Mile Square Health Center in Chicago. In this interview, Philip discusses what he has learned, how he tries to help and how family and friends can play a pivotal role in supporting
0: recovery. Uh, Day-to-day, I am kind of the point person. So my role at my workplace is the um, medication-assisted treatment care coordinator. So if a provider has a patient that comes in that they're concerned with uh, their substance use, and sometimes the patient's concerned as well, um, they'll have me go in to do a consult with them, um right now as we're reaching out to other agencies as well um they've been also referring patients to me so we get a chance to meet with them get a chance to go over what our program consists of the medication options treatment options out in the community um, and getting them linked up
1: someone may who who has a loved one or or a family member with oud they want to get to someone like you i imagine in in their journey to find treatment how would that interaction go? How do you handle that? What 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 kind of questions do you ask them? How can they be prepared for that?
0: Many times when I'm talking with family members specifically, I do ask, is the loved one that you're concerned with interested in going in? When I was working at Haymarket Center, I've had family members that contacted us after they dropped off a loved one at our detox. And they would say, is our family member still there? We did sign off on a release and we would let them know, like, no, they left shortly after you dropped them off, and they would get quite upset. So many times it's working with that individual to see where they're at in regards to their use, because sometimes they're either not ready, don't see that it's a problem yet, um, and sometimes they'll do things that are counterproductive to that relationship with your, with your family member or friends.
1: Right, right. And, I mean, that that's the nexus of things that I, I, I think... People find so difficult. Like, mm-hmm. generally speaking, it's it, the the person may want treatment, but may not want it ten minutes later mm-hmm. because it is a behavioral a, a disease that affects your behavior. Mm-hmm. Is there really anything that you can do as a medical professional? And and the answer may be no. Um, if someone like comes in and says, "Well, I have a person with this problem, but I can't get them to come and see you," like. It, at what point does the person have to become involved?
0: One thing I do with uh, providers is when I'm after I meet with a patient and they are they are aware of the services, they are not interested in anything right now. I do let the provider know. Just keep the conversation open. Don't go back in the next appointment saying, "Did you go?" Just ask them where are we at right now in regards to your alcohol use? Where are we at right now in regards to your opiate use? Mm -hmm. So that way it keeps that conversation open um, so that when they do want treatment, they feel comfortable following up with the provider Um, instead of saying like, oh no, I failed the provider, I failed mom and dad. Um, So I'm not even gonna ask them even though they're ready at that point. So a lot of it is just seeing where Where might it be problematic in the future with your use, um, where you might want to get treatment? So that's one thing I track every time with patients, especially if they're kind of questioning where they want to be at at the moment.
1: And how do you gauge that when you're talking to them? And if, I mean, obviously, if they say, yes, I, I want them, then that's that's an affirmative, important step in, mm-hmm. in the treatment process. What kind of questions do you ask them to to try and determine what the path of treatment may be that you can help them get to? What What are you looking for uh, to make your
0: decision and recommendation? So if individuals are kind of ambivalent in regards to treatment, Typically the question I ask is, what would need to happen where you find the use to be problematic? So, And sometimes they will say, and I'll ask them what's important in your life right now, that you would hate to lose. Um, So sometimes it's relationships with loved ones, it's um, current employment, um, it's respect in the community, so these are things that I'll track, and then later on when I do follow up with them, um, I'll see if those have changed or not. So sometimes during a follow-up, they'll say, okay, I got into arguments with my loved ones. They left and walked out a couple times this past month. Um, Maybe then I'll say, okay, that was something you mentioned to me prior. Is this something you want to kind of discuss more right now. Are you ready now? hmm
1: Yeah. Once you get past that stage, how do you, um, what are the relevant factors to determining this person should be maybe the best place for them as outpatient or maybe the best place for them as inpatient or,
0: um, you know, the different um, medication-assisted treatment options there are? So typically, I will go over all the different options with them. The decision ultimately comes down to the individual themselves. Many times, they are only willing to do an outpatient setting with us in a clinic because they've already established with us. They're comfortable coming to a doctor's office. And one thing I'll let them know is like, okay, even though after the assessment I've done, you do kind of seem to qualify for a higher level of care. The thing is, let's start here. Mm -hmm. If this is what you're comfortable with, and we will see, if this doesn't work out, what is agreement? So, and I'll typically get some guideline down with them, say, okay, we'll try this out for a month. If we continue to um, be using or, or this isn't working out, I'm willing to go in um, and get assessed for a higher level of treatment.
1: So you make a recommendation, but you meet them where they're at. Correct. Correct. And and um, I, I imagine some users would, would at least I've, I've heard this before, the fear that, well, if I engage with a treatment provider, they're going to demand more of me than I'm willing to do. And, but I've also heard you have family members and those trying to help this person who, who probably have been through the ringer for lack of a better word and, and are at the point of, no, you do X or you're gone, Mm -hmm. um, So I think it's it's. I'm I'm sure you probably live that with your patients in terms of how. How do you strike the balance of being, um, of of, allowing the person to do what they want, while also knowing that you know, it may not be the
0: best course. The thing that I, think about is. I need to meet the patients where they're at. Otherwise, they're not coming back. If they do not come back, I do not have an opportunity to work with them again. Um, And sometimes, due to the continued use, that might be the last opportunity where they don't feel comfortable, they might overdose, and then that's more or less it. For me, the important thing is building that rapport with the individuals I'm working with so that they feel comfortable coming back if needed and when they're ready.
1: Because you can be that third party who's who can be objective and, and you're not directly impacted or offended by their behavior or you're not living with it. Um, something I think people struggle with is, um, are there different levels of addiction and is there a different corresponding level of care? With with a lot of other diseases, diseases, um, you have, you know, if you have stage four cancer, there's this regimen. If it's stage two, there's this regimen. Is there the same thing in this field?
0: Uh, yes. Yeah. So with assessments that are done um, due to ASAM ordered, uh, the GAINS assessment, um, there are recommendations due to where patients are at. Um, at the clinic I worked at, we are the least intensive level, so we are medication-assisted treatment, but when again, when they show up to our clinic, that's sometimes where they're at and where they're willing to come to us for. So I always will say this is what the recommendation is, and if they're not open to that, I don't turn them away because they're willing to come and try medication-assisted treatment at our clinic. So, I would rather them try something with agreement if it doesn't work to try something different um otherwise, I say like this is a definition of insanity if we continue doing the same thing with the without having anything else change
1: so can you talk a bit about the relationship between mat and counseling? How imperative is it to do both?
0: I always say to do both um Medication assisted treatment. The name comes from it being the medication as assistance, so it's not medication as treatment. The medications itself will take care of the physical withdrawal symptoms, also will help with cravings. But due to it um, being viewed as a brain disease, it doesn't. The counseling aspect helps out a lot with changing thought processes, um, working on coping skills, working on life skills when things come up, how to deal with tough situations. Um, Some of our patients that have been using since they're teenagers, sometimes they're stuck with the same thought process as at that period of time, because they don't get a chance to kind of develop out of that. Sometimes simple upsets that they've had where they weren't able to watch the television channel they're watching, they can blow up and say that that was a trigger. For other individuals that might seem outrageous, but they're at that developmental period of where they're at and when they started use.
1: How do you how do you explain
0: the the options that there are to them
1: uh, in regards to counseling or counseling
0: and Matt and Matt mat- in general. Yeah,
1: I mean, I think I think it would be helpful for people to kind of know what they're walking into for a meeting mm-hmm. like that.
0: So in meeting, I will go over. Um, Buprenorphine. Uh, buprenorphine's one of the medications that uh, providers at the clinic that I'm at is able to prescribe. Uh, Neltrexone is another one, um, as well as methadone. So I'll go over the th- three differences, how it can be initiated. So with buprenorphine, if they've had last use of heroin within 12 hours, I typically um, will let them know you need a time period around 12 hours and mild withdrawal symptoms before um, initiating otherwise it will cause you to go into withdrawals. And I can also work with the provider as well in regards to getting home induction so it's a lot more comfortable so they don't have to wait and and come back in clinic when they're in withdrawals. What does uh, home induction mean? Uh, Home induction is where we'll prescribe a certain amount of it where of Buprenorphine, where they can induct themselves at home. Many times it is it's it's safe. It's also comfortable for the patients. Uh, a lot of our patients do know how to control their withdrawal symptoms, um, and they know the pharmacology is well pretty well of opioids. So I'll go over the information with them, and the ones that I've had have done a pretty good job um, starting themselves on buprenorphine and coming back to the clinic. Um, methadone, I'll let them know about that option, about how that's typically daily. Um, it's also full agonist, so you don't have to wait, um, until you're to initiate that medication. Um, and I'll provide them with clinics that are close by to them, and then we'll offer to call, um, with them to try to get the intake appointment date set up. Um, with naltrexone, I'll let them know it's seven to 10 days that you need to be off of any opioids. Um, and that's what I typically find that's been difficult, um, is getting that 7 to 10 days. Because um, at, at that point, they would essentially have to go through detox, right? Uh,
1: th- yes. So by then, they would have to go through the... Which they're not going to want to and... necessarily do on their own, so they might go to a detox facility. And
0: Yeah. The ones that I've seen that have been successful are those that have gone through um, a treatment center, and while they're in treatment, get initiated. Okay. Um, I actually, in outpatient setting, I have not had anyone successfully do it for opiate use disorders yet. Um, Typically doctors do not just let them go and say, okay, seven to 10 days, come back. They will offer uh, what we call comfort medications, so medications that help out with the symptoms that individuals are feeling. So like the runny nose, the um, diarrhea, nausea, um, so there's medication that they will provide them to help Ease their withdrawal symptoms during the seven to ten days.
1: And then, how how would you explain the um, the other the 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 other portion of it? So
0: the counseling counseling aspect, I let everyone know part of medication-assisted treatment does involve the assistance of counseling. So I do let them know what we have available at our clinic, in addition to uh, resources out in the community as well. Um, and I typically will call with them, too, to try to get them uh, intake appointment.
1: For most of the people that you work with directly, the, are they most reticent about starting um, the mat part, or is it about the counseling part? Um, wh- where, where does the most resistance come into play?
0: Uh, Resistance-wise, typically it's counseling, um, and many times they have to be comfortable enough in order to be able able to be able to sit through like a 45 or 60 minute session um, with a counselor. So uh, I I feel like patients that once we have them stabilized on medications seem to be a lot more open to counseling. Do you have any um,
1: success stories?
0: Um, Success wise, that's one thing that I um, I always ask patients, what do you find define success? Or even when they say I want to get to a point where I have a normal life like everyone else. It's very subjective. For me, what I see as success is every time they show up for an appointment. Um, That means that they're willing to change still, that they still want to do this. I always say to patients, even when they come in saying, "I, I had a slip up, I've had a lapse. I was like, look, you're here today. You still want to do something different. So that's what I... See a success whenever a patient shows up.
1: So we talked about how how you work with them to to find their um, kind of a motivating factor and and, and, a, and so that they there's a little bit not necessarily of a confrontation but trying to have a realistic conversation about where they're at with their addiction um, and then a bit of goal setting about where they want to be. Um, what kind of goals do, they, um, do the individuals typically kind of set? Can you give me any examples? One of the things I
0: always get concerned with is um, it's, it's also how selfless they kind of want to be. So sometimes it's, I want to do better for my family. I want to get back in relationships with my daughter, with my son. Uh, I want to be able to see my grandkids. Um, But one thing I always kind of stress is to do this for yourself. Don't do it for anyone else um, because sometimes other people will let us down. And if we view that we're doing this for someone else, it's easier to lapse. So the thing is, I say do it for yourself. And what can come about is that you'll have these relationships back. So, um, but many times they do say those things is getting gainful employment, um, so that it can provide for the family. These are things that I want for myself. These are things that anybody wants for themselves as well.
1: Do you talk to them about like their support system and, and how important is a support system in someone's chance at
0: recovery? It's very, so, um... I always offer options to have patients bring in their loved ones to an appointment with me, um, and I've had patients that take that up as well. Yes, the conversations are a little bit different. I do let patients know too, because sometimes when they initiate medication-assisted treatment at our clinic, right off the bat they feel that their loved ones should change as they've changed right off for a week. I do let patients know that sometimes, these loved ones, we have hurt them many times and they have built up walls. I always tell them, don't talk what you're doing, just walk what you're doing, have your loved ones see that you're actually doing something. Mm -hmm. I do let them know that these walls have been built up, they are sometimes solidified, sometimes even so much that you can't knock them down. Um, But the thing is just continue doing what you're doing and just enjoy, the experiences you have because of what you want to be doing. So Mm -hmm. if it is the relationship's back with the family, the family's starting to earn, um, kind of get your trust back, that's great. But the thing is, just don't go out there expecting it from day one, starting with medication-assisted treatment. What should someone expect with someone who's on medication-assisted treatment?
1: I mean, these drugs are are pretty, I think, foreign to the average person, should they, like, will the person still seem high? Will the, might they still use if they use, is it dangerous? What should I expect?
0: Uh, I, I always educate patients to make sure we're st- storing these medications safely. Um, safety profile of buprenorphine, it is relatively safe as there is a ceiling effect. Um, however, um, kids or even pets that are opiate naive um, potentially can overdose from taking it, um, and by opiate naive, I mean like they don't have. The they've tolerance. never cracked, They've yeah. never taken it before. They don't have a tolerance for it. Um, so I do educate on making sure it's safely stored. Um, otherwise, they, with buprenorphine, individuals should not look um, like they're quote unquote high um, or out of it. Um, and many patients that I've seen, they've really haven't had any issues with it.
1: What do you look for out of the support system when you're trying to help someone? What, how can they make it more successful?
0: One thing is seeing what their hesitancy hesitancies are. Typically, I do talk with the loved ones um, just to see what concerns do you have with them being back at home, if they just transition from a recovery home or from detox or hospitalization to our clinic back home. Um, Because many times they are afraid to trust again. Um, So what they start doing is saying, I need to make sure they do a drop every week and I need the results of it. Mm -hmm. And I try to remind them, what is it that you like having them back home? What are the positives that you see in having them back home? And why don't we start focusing on that more so than seeing that He may mess up, she may mess up again, or go back and using, because when you keep doing that, it can also pressure the individual that's trying to change to kind of go back and lapse, because they're living up to the expectations that you might be setting them up for as well. Though sometimes just look at why you want them back home, more so than focusing on this individual's continued use, he's not... Telling me everything truthfully or not. So,
1: so being, being supportive. Correct. Yeah. Correct. Which I imagine can be really hard sometimes. Because mm-hmm. I, I think it's hard for those on the outside to, to say like, well, he's the one doing all these wrong things. Why do I have to change what I'm mm-hmm. doing? Why mm-hmm. is it on me yeah. <laughs> to
0: uh, accommodate that? Yeah. Right. Yeah. And sometimes I can't imagine what families go through as well. Mm -hmm. as each situation is different.
1: To find treatment options in Illinois, please call 833-234-6343 or visit helplineil.org. For treatment options across the United States, please call 1-800-662-HELP or 1-800-662-4357. For information on this podcast and other efforts in Cook County, please visit cookcountysheriff.org. Thank you for listening to this installment of Breaking Free. For episodes, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or Google Play.